mind turning to Matthew chapter 26? Matthew chapter 26 and verse 41. I think I was here the last, um, probably, I think it was um, about 2017, maybe like six years ago, I think was the last, was it 2019? Okay, about four, four years ago, yeah. I mean, the minister, when I last minister, I think it was 2017. Matthew 26 and verse 41. There's just one verse, although we will be coming back and revisiting this verse and looking at other verses. I've titled this sermon, Caught Adrift. Another title could be um, A Warning Against Spiritual Drift. Caught Adrift. Matthew 26 and verse 41. Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Amen. <coughs> and so, Father, we do acknowledge now our tremendous need of your hand of grace at this present time. Lord, that you would quicken your word to each one of us. That, Lord, as we open our hearts and as we prepare our minds and we say, Lord, that you would come this morning and search us and try us and prove us. And say, Lord, within us, Father, if you see anything that is displeasing in your sight that perhaps even we're blind to this morning. Lord, we have full assurance knowing that those whom you love you chasten. And it is our joy and our pleasure to be able to yield ourselves to you, Father, with that knowledge that, my God, you love us. And so, Lord, we do ask this morning that thy word would come, Lord, like a refiner's fire, that the Spirit of God and his great help would be felt among us this morning, and that we would be drawn closer to you by your grace. And so I ask for your help, Lord, as your servant now. Give me that grace, I pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 One of the great blessings of living here in England is getting to experience the four changing seasons of the year. The falling leaves of autumn, the budding shoots of spring. And we get the privilege to watch as autumn turns to winter and winter turns to spring. And then, of course, following on the heels of spring is summer. Now, I love the clean, crisp air of a frosty morning's winter. Breath that can be seen like a vapour appearing and then suddenly it dissipates into the air. And who doesn't like to experience the moment, the rare moment of perhaps waking up to see a silent landscape overlaid with a blanket of snow. Of all the seasons of the year, winter perhaps is amongst my favourite, second perhaps only to summer. And you remember as a child those summer months, there were days like no other. Waking up, you perhaps can remember to a bedroom as a child. I remember, you know, getting ready for school. And as I would awake in the morning, you know, I would just see the bedroom filled with the morning light. The cloudless skies, the warm, dry air. The shortened days of darkness gone. 
Summer has come, and I would play with my friends late into the evening hours until the um, sun would finally retire to sleep. There's something about the sun that brings people out. I mean, you can bear witness on a blazing summer's hot day that people come out of their caves and they head usually for the beach, for the breeze of the sea and the cooler waters of the sea. And there they are sitting on deck chairs, sunbathing on the sand, swimming in the open sea. There's nothing quite like that. Yet I want to say that in all of this seeming harmless fun, there are very real dangers at play. Many lives are tragically lost each summer by people getting caught out and regrettably drowning in the sea. And one of the great dangers that is posed by the sea is that of drift. You've all seen, I'm sure, those inflatable dinghies, those rafts or those sunbeds. People get into them and relax and enjoy the summer sun and the gentle breeze. And before they know it, they're out at sea, caught adrift. Now, can you imagine the horror? The horror? All it takes is a gentle breeze blowing, an offshore breeze. You close your eyes for a moment of relaxation. And alas, you awake and you find that you're a mile out at sea with no real way of getting back to shore. And you say this morning, brother, does that ever happen? Does this kind of stuff happen? And I say it does. In fact, you don't even need a sea breeze. One can be carried out to sea by the tide alone. I want, as I begin to set the scene this morning, I want to read the words here of a, what a UK Coast Guard had to say about this phenomenon of tide. Quote, People obviously come to the beach to relax, but they can become complacent. Complacent. Especially this year when we are anticipating one of our busiest summers ever. I think part of the issue is that people are used to travelling to places like the Mediterranean, which is non-tidal. And then they come to Norfolk, of course, on the east coast of the United Kingdom. And they have no idea of what a tide actually is. Often they are non-locals. And they don't understand the phenomenon of a tide. The phenomenon of a tide. Now there's a lot of spiritual truth. There's a lot of truth in what she said, but also a lot of spiritual truth that I want to try to bring out to you this morning. I'm speaking here about spiritual drift. Caught adrift. Caught adrift. That open mass of water that you and I call the sea, without boundaries and walls, might well be likened to the world in which we find ourselves in this morning. And many a Christian soul has been caught adrift in the waters of this world. And our Lord said as believers, yes, that we're in the world, you know the verse, but we're what not of the world, John 17. 
And whilst the relationship remains like that, in the world but not of the world, then all is well. But you know as well as I do that this world has a tide of its own, a tide, a tidal system, a pull, if you like, and a drawing out to see. For all that is in the world, John writes in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And before this, in verse 15, he says this, Love not the world, nor the things that are in the world. 1 John 2 and verse 15. Now, don't misunderstand me, please, this morning. God has given to us every good thing to be enjoyed, and if used lawfully, the things that are in this world serve as a tremendous blessing to us. I mean, he's given us the sun and the rain. He's given us to the, the wind. He's given us the beauty of nature, crops and food. Everything that our soul should desire. And if we use these things lawfully, then they are a blessing from God and we can give him much thanks. And whilst this world remains a servant to us, then we can praise God. But when it becomes our master, and that's really the essence of what John here is speaking of, when it becomes our master, then we're in trouble. Love not the world doesn't mean that we don't appreciate the world, but it has to do with the value in which we place upon it. Where is our loyalty? What captures the desires of our hearts? Is it the bling of this life? The drive for material gain and possessions? Or the tidal pull towards success? How we appear in the eyes of others? The pride of life, John writes. Or the gratifying of the flesh whereby we use this world to fulfill the lustful desires of our flesh. Whilst this world remains a servant to us, fine, but when it becomes our master, we're in trouble. And as Christians, we should never be complacent. I put myself in the mix of all that I'm going to be saying today. I'm not standing here on this lectern pointing fingers, but everything that I am going to share and have already shared applies to me. Because I'm in this world with you. As Christians, we're never to become complacent. We are ever to be aware of the dangers of the environment that we find ourselves afloat in. And we are to take heed to the warnings of Holy Scripture. Friends, there's warnings in this book. We haven't time this morning to look at them all. But warnings are there for a reason, I would argue, and are needed to be taken heed to. And Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6, he gives this kind of warning. He says, Godliness with contentment 
is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, that's clothing, let us therewith be content. But, and here comes the warning. What's Paul saying? He's saying, look, there is this virtue called contentment when mingled with godliness is of great gain to the life and to the soul of the believer in the world. But not of it. And he gives us this warning. But the flip side. They that will be rich. Now notice he doesn't say those that are rich. Those that will be rich. There were rich people in the word of God. Lydia was a rich woman. She received Paul into her home. Blessed him and his team. Paul baptized her. There's nothing wrong with riches. Paul says they that will be rich. Fall into temptation and a snare. And into many foolish and hurtful lusts. Which drown men in destruction and perdition ruin. For the love of money is the root of all evil. Not money, but the love of money. The desire and the, the pull, if you like, to obtain wealth in whatever form that may come. Paul says because of this, many have fallen into temptation, into a snare, have been caught into many harmful lusts, foolish lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition for the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So Paul could say firsthand that he witnessed this, this wasn't second-hand information. Paul could say there were once those that walked with him, but through the pursuit of this world, they've gone astray. And he said they've erred from the faith, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through to 8. Now, I want to recall to your mind again the words of this Coast Guard because I want to share firsthand what I've realized and what I've had witness to see during my years as a Christian. She said, I think part of the issue is that people are used to traveling to places like the Mediterranean, which is not a tidal. And then they come to Norfolk and have no idea of what a tide actually is. Often they are non-locals and they don't understand the phenomenon of a tide. Now for those of us who've grown up in this country, I was born here, born and bred in Wolverhampton, England. We understand the phenomenon of the tidal pull that exists within this country, the strong pole, the very real pole, 
this tidal pull towards materialism, success, and fleshly appetites. It's incredibly strong within this country. I mean, there's advertisement galore. We live in a world system here in the United Kingdom that has an incredible pull towards materialism. We know what that pull is. But there are those coming from other countries and so often I've seen firsthand how they've got caught out. The non-locals, if you like, that this Coast Guard here spoke of, that in the Mediterranean there's no real tidal pull, as it were, and so they can enjoy the sea at leisure, but here in the United Kingdom, if you're not careful, relaxing and complacency, and you're drawn out to see the tidal pull. I remember a pastor who came over from the Democratic Republic of Congo, very godly man, and he shared with me, and he bore his heart to me, and he talked and he shared that how in his country it was war-torn, and he'd learned how to survive as a Christian amidst war, conflict, physical conflict, where his life was in jeopardy physically, the life of his family was in jeopardy, they counted the cost. And they purposed in their heart that they're going all out for the Lord Jesus Christ. But alas, he'd been caught out here in the United Kingdom. You see, he'd come from a poor country that was war-torn. He was close to the Lord back home. But alas, as he endeavoured to journey with Christ and his family here within this country, he was caught out. And he bore his heart to me with great pain at how compromise had come in, how the television had gained a hold over his wife and children, the PlayStation, he couldn't get them off it. And the things that were not a problem back home, he'd been caught and instead, and he bore his heart. But listen, it's not only non-locals who find themselves going adrift, Look around and see, the locals are getting caught off guard, it seems, too. I can't tell you over the years how many, sadly, I've seen who I once walked with, who have gone adrift. They've got caught out, too. Gone adrift, and even to this day, are still out there in the sea. This is serious business. Turn, please, to Matthew chapter 13. I'm trying to raise a warning this morning and to really raise an alarm and to bear my heart to you. This is something I'm ever mindful of in my own personal life. Getting caught adrift. In Matthew chapter 13 and verse 1, it's the parable of the sower. The same day went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside, and a great multitudes were gathered together unto him, so that he went into a ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a soul went forth to sow. 
And when he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up, because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them, but other fell into good ground, and brought forth fruit, some an hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Now this parable our Lord gave us, a picture describing the heart conditions of various souls, the seed being the word of the gospel, being scattered and finding its way onto different soils, the good soil, the thorny soil, the stony soil, and then those seed that fell among the wayside. And we're not left to guess what the different soils represent because Jesus goes on to give us the interpretation of the parable in verse 18. Hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catches away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which received seed by the wayside. But he that received the seed into stony places, the same is he that heareth the word, and anon with joy, or immediately with joy, he receives it. Yet hath he not root in himself, but endures for a while. For when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by or immediately he is offended. He also that received seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word. And the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becometh unfruitful. But he that received the seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Now we haven't time this morning to get into each of those soil conditions, but there's one that I want to bring out in context to what I'm saying to you and sharing with you this morning. And it's the seed which fell among the thorns. I want you to notice in verse 22, the Lord says there's two things here that are the cause for the word being choked out, suffocated if you like, strangled. He also that received seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word. Number one, the care of this world. The care of this world. Number two, the deceitfulness of riches. Show the word and he becometh unfruitful. Now notice that the Lord here says he becomes, she becomes, becomes unfruitful. 
Now, in order to become unfruitful implies that there was a time when fruit was being born in that individual's life, when the Word of God was blossoming and flourishing, and the fruit of it was being born in the lives of the people until the thorns grew up with it and stifled out the fruit such that it became unfruitful. It went from a place of fruitfulness to a place of unfruitfulness. The text would imply that. Now the two causes, number one, the cares of this world, and number two, the deceitfulness of riches, are two things that living in this country we know too well. I mean, stress is in epidemic proportions today. As people don't seem to be able to cope with life, you'd think, look, in an affluent country like this, what could be there to worry about? But no, we see worry plagues the hearts not only of the world, but of God's people too. The word was choked out because the thorns grew up. The deceitfulness of riches, the cares of this world, anxiety and worry. Now, our Lord does not only mention here, as I've said, the deceitfulness of riches, but he says that what seemingly is benign to us, I mean, look, deceitfulness of riches, the lust for material possession, the bling and the glamour, and the poor, we would all readily recognize, look, as Christians, this is sinful. To open one's heart and to embrace this world is a sinful thing. But worry and anxiety, I mean, we all worry, don't we? We, we all are filled with anxiety. But Jesus says both of these are the cause for barrenness, are the cause for that fruit being choked out and we're going to see why shortly it really has to do with this that a double hearted man can't really serve the Lord you see because we're commanded to love the Lord with all of our heart and all of our soul all of our mind and all of our strength and when that is compromised and our priorities are divided in two Jesus says it's impossible to serve him. As we ought, we can go through the motions, but our heart won't really be there for God. The cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches, like a tide, will draw a man's soul out to sea. It's these two dangers that our Lord has in mind in Matthew chapter 6. If you wouldn't mind turning there in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's no coincidence that again these two things appear alongside each other. They're very real threats. Matthew 6. He begins with the riches of this world. Verse 19. 
Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also treasure. What has our hearts? Jesus said, where our treasure is, that's where your heart, your loyalties, your priorities, that's where it will be, where your treasure is. And Jesus says our treasure ought to be in heaven and not on this earth. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. No man can serve two masters. It might appear that we can, but Jesus says we can't. Because you see, you'll have a division, a division in one's priorities. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will love the one, hold to the one, and despise the other. He says, you cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and material abundance. Something will give. I found that when this eye is working properly, set on the things of the Lord, then my whole body is full of light. I'm free to walk in the purity of light and the word of God is my strength. I'm strongest in my face with the Lord when I'm all in. But when I'm compromised, I find I'm weak. Easily tempted, caught out. This is really here what the Lord is saying. You see, it's not that the Lord is putting these things on us to whip us. He's really telling us the rules of the game. How this really works. And I fear that as Christians generally we've done things down so greatly today that if someone can put their hand up and say, yes, I'll receive the Lord, then they're in the kingdom of God, glory to God, and that's all there is to it. But no, we're called to walk this Christian life and it's full of snares and pitfalls. It's not easy being a Christian in this country, but it's possible if we would yield our all to the Lord. And so you really, it's not that I'm sort of trying to say, you know, that there's this super spirituality, those who are all in, and then there's this almost lower rate of Christianity. There's only one Christianity. And it's this, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. And really there is no other. And it is showing in the churches today which are on the demise. No power, no authority, no reality. And so Jesus says you can't serve two masters. 
divided allegiance. Can't be done. And then he goes on here immediately to speak then about the care of this world. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life. That means don't be anxious for your life, worried and filled with care. What you will eat or what you will drink. I mean, we worry about things far less than basic commodities of food and clothing. You know, but Jesus here deals with the very root. And food and drink, nor yet for your body what you will put on, is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment. Behold, the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap nor gather into barns. In other words, the birds of the air don't worry about where their next meal is coming from. They're not scattering seed and waiting for the harvest and then reaping the harvest and storing it into barns. And yet the birds seem to be doing perfectly well because the Father in heaven provides for them. And Jesus is trying really to put things into perspective because you see when we're full of anxiety it's really because we've lost perspective. We've lost sight of who God is and what he's able to do. We've lost sight of his promises that God said he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And when I'm worrying, I'm really not trusting the Lord because I've lost perspective and this problem now has been magnified out of all proportion and it is a harm to my soul. Because I can't really walk in step with the Lord in the spirit, full of unbelief. Can I say this morning that unbelief is a sin? It's not a sin to be tempted to anxiety. But what are we going to do with the anxiety? Philippians chapter 4, be careful for nothing, but in everything, in prayer and supplications, make your requests with thanksgiving, make your request be known unto the Lord, or let your request be known unto the Lord, and he shall garrison, shall keep your minds through Christ Jesus. He will give to us a peace which passeth all understanding. And so what are we to do when anxieties come? We're to trust the Lord. We're to bring our flesh to the altar and say, Lord, Help me, I'm in need. And Lord, I believe that you are, and I also believe that you are a rewarder, Hebrews 11, 6, of them that diligently seek you. And as you made that transaction with God, whereby you take your problem and you leave it with the Lord, fully persuaded that he's heard you, that he's answering according to his time, and then guess what? You'll experience shalom, the peace of God, which is not based on rationale. It's divinely given, supernaturally given. And that peace, friends, will keep us in a storm. It will, because it comes from God. And you and I will be able to walk through this world with a peace filling our hearts, serving the Lord's. Your heavenly Father feeds them. Are ye not much better 
than that. Which one of you taking thought can add one cubit to his stature? And why take he thought for clothing, raiment? <laughs> Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for tomorrow, for tomorrow shall take thought of the things of itself, Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. We serve a heavenly father. Look, I'm a father. And I have a son. And when my son asks me, my heart is moved. I'm not working on laws and principles. My heart is moved with compassion toward my son. How much more our heavenly father... He's aware of what we're going through. He understands the situations. He asks us to come to him and to trust him that he is a good God, a loving Father, full of mercy, abounding in compassion and grace. He's not brought us this way to destroy us, the children of Israel. He's brought us into the wilderness to kill us. No. He's brought us into the wilderness to prove us, to see what's in our hearts, to humble us, that we might understand man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And God calls each one of us to journey with him by faith. Take his hand and trust him. In the hills, in the valleys, in the wilderness, through the woods, he's a faithful God. And he will not forsake, nor will he lead us. To trust the Lord. No one ever plans to go adrift. Just like no one ever plans to get lost. Nine times out of ten it happens through complacency. And the lack of watchfulness. Watchfulness. We take our eye off the ball. And we lose sight of the dangers of the environment that you and I are in. Until at last, before long, it dawns on us, we've lost our way. In 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12, Paul says, Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. It's a little bit like that tamed lion, as it were, in the zoo. And from a young cub, that lion has been trained and the zookeeper comes in each morning and feeds it. Whatever in the back of his mind is aware, he's dealing with a lion that has instinct and he's cautious. 
and careful. And he does not let his guard down because that beast can rip him to shreds. And it's like that in this one. We've been pulled out of it. Yes, praise the Lord. But we are still in it. And we need to be aware of the dangers that this world poses to every one of us. Lest we should get caught in the drift. I remember back in 2004 we'd gone for a walk in the Lake District, Eskdale, a beautiful part of the country. It was Christmas Eve. We'd walked this walk before, we knew the path quite loosely, and we were talking away with another sister in the Lord and her daughter, and we lost concentration. We were enjoying the fellowship so much that somewhere along the path we'd taken the wrong turn in the fork, if you like, and it suddenly dawned on us that we've not been this way before. Now, true to form, being a man, I assured everyone, don't worry, it's going to be alright. We'll find our way down. But really what I should have done is turned around and retraced my steps and tried to get back on the route. But I thought, no, we, we should be okay. Now there was a problem. We left out quite late in the afternoon. I mean, we weren't amateurs. We, we, weren't even, we were like beginners, but we were foolish. We didn't bring the rucksack. We didn't bring any covers with us. We didn't bring a compass. We didn't bring any extra food. It was just us. And we left out late in the afternoon. And remember, it's Christmas Eve, winter. And come four o'clock, we got to witness a beautiful sunset. But we were probably not in the right place to be really seeing that because the stars came out and we thought, we're finished. We're going to end up spending the night here on this mountain. Who knows what temperature, there was no cloud cover at that time. I mean, it could have dropped down, it was already starting to bite. And my heart was just thinking about the poor girl that was with us. How, how is she going to spend the night here with no blankets or anything else? And so we began praying, we began singing and rejoicing, and I had my phone, it was, remember, nearly 20 years ago, and there were sort of like, you know, weren't smartphones then, and no reception, and I thought we finished. And so we were praying and rejoicing, and then suddenly I had reception come on the phone, and we rejoiced, and I was able to make an SOS call. We saw the torches in the distance coming, and you'll never believe what the man said as he came to rescue us with the team. They said, as Jesus said, let's get the sheep out of here. We couldn't believe our eyes. We were rejoicing and praising the Lord. But there was a lesson in that for us. Because you see, we can become complacent on our Christian walk. And we can forget really the terrain that we're in. Yes, the mountain looked beautiful, but there needed to be a reverence for it because it's not for casual walkers. If you're caught in the wrong place at the wrong time, it can ultimately be life-threatening. <laughs> now our Lord tells us, we read it in Matthew 26 and verse 41, that we should be a watching people and a praying people. Watch and pray. Why? That ye enter not into temptation. 
The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Matthew 26 and verse 41. Now I want to ask a question this morning. Do you believe those words? Do you believe that when Jesus said that we were to watch and pray, that he meant it? And also that he meant what he went on to say, that he entered not into temptation. Now that implies to me that if we're not watching and praying, then we're liable to fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And the apostle Peter agrees with this in 1 Peter 4 and verse 7. He says these words, The end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. We all know what soberness is. Free from intoxication. When you're sober, your mind is sharp. When you're sober, you're alert. When you're sober, you're vigilant and aware of your surroundings. Peter tells us the end of all things is at hand. And if he said that nearly 2,000 years ago, how much at hand are they today? In 2023, the Lord is at the door. And we are to be a sober people, not allowing this world, if you like, to gaslight us, being intoxicated with this world where we lose perspective and we lose the sharpness of discernment. And we're lulled to sleep and caught off guard. We ought to be aware of our surroundings. And Peter calls us to walk watchfully. Jesus calls us to watching and prayer. That word to watch means to walk circumspectly. It speaks about a cautiousness. A watching on every side. With attention to guard against sudden danger. Now you say, does, does it have to be this intense? It has to be this intense. There's areas back home and areas things outside of where I live where you need to be circumspect. They're notorious areas. There are areas that you don't really want to be walking through at night alone. And when I'm walking, I'm aware of my surroundings. I'm looking over my shoulder, I'm aware of who's over there. I have my wallet here on the front of me. That's just basic wisdom. But we're called to walk through this world like that, cautiously and aware of our surroundings, watching unto Prayer, prayer, being mindful and bringing these things to the, to the Lord, sorry, in prayer. In this way we shall keep ourselves from danger. You remember the Garden of Gethsemane as our Lord faced before Calvary's cross the excruciating agony of soul knowing what awaited him on the morrow. He wasn't found idle, but he was found in prayer. 
Beseeching his father, Father, we heard it this morning. If there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. He was found in prayer. Aware of the circumstances and the hour that his father had asked of his soul. See then that you walk circumspectly, Ephesians 5 and verse 15, not as fools, but as wise. It's crucial in this paradise, our brothers and sisters, that we are a discerning people, discerning people. I want to ask you the question this morning, are you adrift in your Christian walk? Are you drifting out to sea? Have you moved away from the peaceful shores which once characterised your life? We're all subject to change. Where I am today might not necessarily be where I am in a year from now. And I'm aware of that. And I'm ever trying to just stay close to the shore. I'm subject to drift as you're subject to drift. And for that reason we need to be a praying people, a vigilant people, and a sober people. But can I ask this morning this question? How would you know if you were adrift? You see, I've asked the question, are you drifting? This morning, but I follow it with another question, how would you know? Generally people don't know they're drifting out, because if they knew they were drifting out, guess what, they'd swim back to shore. They usually find out when it's too late and they're a mile out, and it doesn't matter if they kick and swim, the tide has pulled them there. And they're not going anywhere. They need rescuing. We'll come on to that in a moment. How would you know if you drifted? Well, think of the natural. How would you know whether or not you were drifting out at sea? Could you tell by looking ahead to sea that you're drifting out to sea? And of course the answer is no. If you're looking out to sea, it all looks the same. You could be one mile out, two miles out, three miles out. It's just sea. The only real way you're going to know if you're drifting out is to turn around and look back to shore. To look back to shore. It's only then that you are able to gauge really how far out you are from it. And by default, how far out to sea you are. And it's exactly the same in the spiritual. There are fixed landmarks that serve as signposts to inform us whether or not we are adrift spiritually. And I just want to look at two this morning before I close. Number one, there's the landmark of meeting. I'll explain a little bit more about that, the landmark of meeting. And number two, there's the landmark of fruits. 
And I know that when these two things are waning in my life, I'm drifting. Doesn't matter how I feel. Doesn't matter where I'm standing. I know something's not right in my soul. And I need to head back to shore. Let me speak firstly about the landmark of meeting. As a pastor, one of the first indicators that a sheep might be adrift and in danger is that they go missing from the flock. They go missing from the flock. Missing from the meetings. If they're absent for a week and then, of course, one's mind thinks, well, I hope they're okay physically. Maybe they're sick. Maybe they've had things on. Can I be of help anyway, in any way? But when that one week turns to three weeks, turns to four weeks, and they're usually in the house of God, then my heart as a shepherd is troubled because I suspect something is not well with their soul. I don't need to wait for them to call me, I'm calling them, because I want to know how are you? How are things? How are things? The word of God tells us in Hebrews 10 and verse 24 and 25 that we're to consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the custom of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. In my experience, one of the first observable signs that a Christian is adrift is their absence in the meetings they once attended. You see, when you're walking with God, you want to be with the people of God. You don't need to convince me or work me up to get to a prayer meeting. I want to be in the prayer meeting. I want to be in the house of God amongst the people of God because it's there, as we've heard, where iron sharpens iron. It's where I grow. It's where I enjoy the fellowship of God's people as we worship God together. But when things are not right with my soul and I'm adrift, then the meetings of God lose that attraction. Because other priorities come in now, and other desires take the place of the former. But listen, one's absence from the church meetings is what we get to observe. But there's another meeting that I want to submit, the wandering soul left off first. You say, what was that meeting? The meeting with the Lord each day in the quiet place. Oh, that's where all spiritual drift begins. When I lose vital reality in the quiet place with God. When I get too busy to pray. When other priorities come in and choke out. And I reason to myself, well look, as long as I'm going to church I'll be okay. But you see where the intimate meeting with the Lord suffers shipwreck, the meeting amongst the people of God, sooner or later will follow 
I want to read this hymn to you. It was written by a lady called Ellen G. Gorey. She was born in India, came over to England in the mid-1800s, and she went back to her native country of India as a missionary. She wrote this beautiful hymn called In the Secret of His Presence. In the secret of his presence, how my soul delights to hide. Oh, how precious are the lessons which I learn at Jesus' side. Earthly cares can never vex me, neither trials lay me low. For when Satan comes to tempt me, to the secret place I go. When my soul is faint and thirsty, neath the shadow of his wing, there is cool and pleasant shelter and a fresh and crystal spring. And my Saviour rests beside me as we hold communion sweet. If I tried, I could not utter what he says when thus we meet. Only this I know, I tell him, all my doubts, my griefs and fears. Oh, how patiently he listens, and my drooping soul he cheers. Do you think he'll ne he never proves me what a false friend he would be if he never, never told me of the sins which he must see? Would you like to know the sweetness of the secret of the Lord? Go and hide beneath his shadow. This shall then be your reward. And whene'er you leave the silence of that happy meeting place, you must mind and bear the image of the Master in your face. These are beautiful words. You see, the quiet place with the Lord is a preservation to my soul. It's not that the Lord needs me to fellowship with Him. I need to fellowship with Him. Because it's there where I draw near and he puts me back into shape and gives me the bird's eye view of things and reproves me. Son, you were sharp with your tongue there. Go and ask for forgiveness. Son, you're wandering over here. Come back. Ah, it's in that quiet place that we hold communion with the Lord. And it is a great help and a benefit to your soul and to mine to keep us from spiritual Drift. And when that meeting goes adrift, the soul goes adrift with it. The landmark of meeting. Secondly and finally, how do I know that I'm adrift? I want to speak lastly about the landmark of fruit. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church in chapter 13 and verse 5, he gives them this challenge. Examine yourselves, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Put yourself to the test. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates. 
Now we know that the divine life of Christ, when we called upon the Lord, came in abundant power and reality into our lives. The Christian life is impossible without Christ indwelling by His Spirit the lives of believers. And this Christian life isn't about Paul Williams living. This Christian life is about Paul Williams dying so that Jesus Christ can live his life through me. And when I'm yielded to God and my life is on the altar and I'm crucified with Christ, then guess what? His life flows out of my life. How do I know when I'm going adrift? When you begin to see more of Paul Williams than you do of Jesus Christ, something's gone amiss. Something's gone amiss. Finally, please turn to Galatians 5 and we'll end here. Galatians 5 and verse 16. Oh, this is a litmus test that never lies. When I'm becoming impatient, when I'm becoming ratty, when I'm becoming critical, when I'm giving this tongue to gossip and complaining, when the lusts of the flesh I'm feeding them, I know one thing, I'm drifting. I'm drifting. And I need again to return to shore. Galatians 5 and verse 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. And Paul goes on to give the list of the sins of the flesh. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, and he goes down the list. And then he comes to verse 22 and he speaks of the fruit of the Spirit, those qualities that the Spirit of God produces in us by virtue of the fact that we have been, um, if you like, grafted into the vine who is Christ, John 15. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And I know when those fruits of the Holy Spirit are being evidenced in my life, I know that I'm close to shore. Because when I behold, I behold the Saviour. In me, through me, living his life, and my family get to see it. They that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. When this flesh is uncrucified, spiritually, I'm adrift. 
Now as you sit under the sound of God's word this morning, I'm wondering if the Lord has spoken to any one of you. And he simply said to your heart this morning, you're not where you once were spiritually. The quiet times have gone. And you're not where you once were. Easily irritable, given to anger quickly. Thus, those passions of the heart which once you mastered when you were crucified with him, now are beginning to resurface. You're looking in places you shouldn't look at, things you shouldn't be looking at. And the Spirit of God is convicting you. And he's saying, son, you're adrift. Daughter, you're adrift. Turn back and come back to shore. But you say this morning, how preacher, the tide is too great, I haven't the strength to swim. Have you forgotten this morning that we serve a risen Saviour? He's able to return you back to shore, but he waits for you to call. I was sinking deep in sin, the hymn writer wrote, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry, from the waters lifted me, now safe and Love lifted me, love lifted me. When no one but Christ could help love lifted me. Souls in danger, look above. Jesus completely saves. He will lift you by his love out of the angry waves. He's the master of the sea. Billows his will obey. He your saviour wants to be, be saved too. in me, where I acknowledge, Lord, as David did when Nathan the prophet was said, you're the man, and I allow the walls of excuses to come down, and I say, Lord, you're spot on, I am the man. That's called humility, and the Lord said he will give grace to the humble. He will not despise the brokenhearted. And you can't tell me that a man or a woman would cry from the sea in such a cry and that the Lord would not immediately come to their aid. He will. When you and I draw near to God, James tells us he draws near to us. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift. You Remember from whence you are fallen and repent. Come back to the Lord this morning. Amen. And he will strengthen you and he will fill you and he will bring you back to the shores. And you will know the joy of the Lord is your strength. Amen. May God encourage each one of you this morning in his precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, Father, I truly thank you this morning for helping me in my weakness to be able to share your word. And something of your heart this morning 
to my precious brothers and sisters. The word first is for me, Lord. I too need this word. I too, Lord, need to be vigilant and circumspect. And I pray that you will encourage this precious flock this morning. And that if any have gone astray, that Lord, in your mercy now, even as they sit in their seats, you have promised, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall not be ashamed. We shall not call on you in vain, Lord, because you are a present help in time of trouble, and you draw near to the brokenhearted. And as we humble ourselves and we acknowledge, Lord, before you that you've loved us so you've chastened us this morning. Oh, when we come back, Lord, you will scoop us out and we will sit again at your table and enjoy the fullness of your spirit. And so I do pray, Lord, you hear our cry this morning in Jesus' name.